Hello and welcome to The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, how was your week, my friend? It was very good, thanks. <laughs> wow, descriptive. Also with us here in Chicago, the godfather himself, Dave Harbarger. Hi, everybody. Hello, Dave. If I don't sound like myself today, it's because I am starving myself slowly and I'm out of Weight Watchers points and I don't know what's going to happen. Just have, have some healthy air, Dave. <gasps> mm, a big bite. Last but not least, it's our resident snowman, Zach Colhan. Oh, wow. That's the first time you've done it right ever. This is going to be a great night, guys. Let's do this. On a roll. This week, we'll jump into the breakdown with a look at the February 24 Magic Online Modern Challenge, followed by a look at the Magic Fest Cleveland Modern MCQ. We'll also share some of our patented sustainable hot takes from the February 19 and 22nd MTGO League 5-0 deck dumps. Then on our dive down, we're digging up the dirt on Dredge. How to play it, how to beat it, and everything in between. Finally, we wind down with a conversation about the new proposed mulligan rule. But first, the part of the show you've all been waiting for, it's time for a little housekeeping. The people made their demands and Channel Fireball answered the call. This weekend's GP Los Angeles is modern and we will have video stream hosted in part by LSV. Marshall Sutcliffe, Huey Jensen, and Riley Knight. Woo! That is, that's a good lineup. That's a good lineup. Stars, really. I like all those We have people. actual video to watch again of coverage, which everybody has been waiting for, complaining about, sending emails to their congressmen about uh, what, whatever other ways that people can engage to try to get what they want. So why, why does this matter, guys? Eyeballs matter on Twitch. Pays the bills. But more importantly, why does it matter for Magic and Modern? So here, here's why it matters is that LSV said um, on limited resources last week that the video coverage that they do over the next couple of GPs that they're going to try out with Channel Fireball will heavily determine whether they continue to do video coverage or not. So apparently Channel Fireball has put together a crew of people at a, at a uh, kind of level of effort that they feel okay with, but they're not going to con- continue doing it if people don't watch. And given that... We really want to see games actually being played. We want there to be video on demand out there so we can go watch it, watch matches later, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think it's really important that everybody, all of our listeners and the four of us really set some time aside this weekend to either watch the coverage or to leave our TVs on Twitch to set the channel fireballs as long as we can. Make some, make some shadow accounts, just have them all log in in different machines and just have them go all day. Yeah. Because otherwise, it's really hard to tell how people ended up in the top eight when we don't get to see the Swiss. So, you guys have any thoughts? Are you going to watch coverage now that it's going to be out there? Oh, heck yeah. I'm excited. I'll be very honest and say I have not watched any modern coverage prior to making this podcast. And I've watched videos, and I've watched things like that, but I've never actually watched a live tournament or anything like that before. Why don't you think you've watched it before, Zach? That's a good question. I feel like... There was a part of me that wasn't as invested in modern or didn't take it as seriously as I have been more recently, and especially since we decided to put more effort and write down thoughts and collaborate on this. And I think that for me, it was, oh, I have other stuff going on. I'll, you know, play video games or listen to music or do other hobbies of mine. But I feel like being more entrenched in this hobby and 
getting a lot more out of it, I'm encouraged to see the meta develop in front of me. Usually whenever I watch coverage, I actually just multitask and I have it in the background, kind of like a video podcast, and I'll play video games or, you know, diddle around my computer or whatever. Yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with that. You can always tune in if you hear someone you like is playing or hear a card name that you resonate with, etc. Yeah, or decks that I'm curious about, uh, wanted to keep an eye on, or maybe decks I've played myself and I want to see one of the pros pilot it. I just watch it with my kid so that he stops making me watch Paw Patrol. That's an important consideration as well. It It is. It's acceptable viewing to him. And uh, we just kind of go from there on Saturday afternoons in the playroom. So your two-year-old is into magic coverage. Um, He's three. Yeah, come and, on. And um, he's also already learning how to play Counter's Company. No, you should give him Tron. It's the easiest deck in the format. Oh, zing. <laughs> just teach, right, teach well. him which hands to keep. <laughs> All right, so just to put a bow on this, please watch the coverage if you care about there being coverage in the future of Magic Fests, at least in the immediate future, because if this doesn't work out, there's just not going to be any coverage coming up. Yeah, we got one more point on housekeeping we want to make, which is a shout out to the hipsters of the Coast writer and fellow modern enthusiast Emma Partlow. If you haven't seen her work, she primarily writes about modern and has a great mind for the game. We always look at what she says on the format, and we'll share a link to some of our articles in the show notes. Definitely a valuable resource for casual spikes. Yeah, and she was super nice, and she shared our link to the last episode out with all of her Twitter followers. So we really really appreciate the signal boost, and we will do the same as soon as we can. But now the moment we've been speculating about for weeks, we've got to talk about the Thursday Modern announcement. A note to listeners, because of our recording schedule, the next segment was recorded separately from the rest of the episode. So if somehow anything we say during the rest of the show seems weird in light of the Thursday announcement, at least you'll know why. All right, well, it is now Thursday. We have traveled forward in time, and we finally found out what this much speculated and hyped new modern product is. It is called Modern Horizons, and it is an exclusively modern legal set that is skipping standard. It will primarily feature new cards, plus reprints of cards not currently in modern, and they even announced that it will not feature any reprints of cards that are currently in modern. The set comes out on June 14th, with a draft pre-release happening the weekend of June 8th and 9th. The set will feature 254 cards, plus a buy a box promo. It will be available in stores and Magic Online, and will have a price of $6.99 per booster pack on Magic Online. Guys, what did you think of the announcement today? Mm. I'm like, I'm so, so, so pro and con here. Do you want to do a little sandwich? Pro, con, pro? <laughs> A compliment sandwich, yeah. All right, yeah. yeah. Okay, here's my compliment sandwich, okay? I think that Modern's going to get a huge injection of to- totally new cards, and I'm not opposed to that, because we, we have seen like a few new decks pop up over the past few years, but I think the format is, by and large, really stable. Like, you know, even things like Hollow One, Devoted Company, Humans are going to be over two years old. By the time this set comes out. So in terms of like popular slash good decks we've seen in the past two years, it's like Spirits and Is It Phoenix are the latest sort of newer decks that have really come into the format. So I think that's good. I think that Modern could use it a big injection of just new, fresh stuff to work with. 
my issue, perhaps my, my, my negative and the negatives and the compliment sandwich here is that this is just another price gouge for people who are invested in the format. I think the, the price of these packs, if the moto price is anything to be believed, then we're going to be looking at like $10 paper packs. And that's not good. I don't like that. Um, I also think that based on what we heard, it's kind of like looking like 50-50 perhaps is kind of looks like what they were shooting for in terms of something that's designed to actually be in competitive modern and something that is for like limited fun or casual formats. So it doesn't mean we're going to like suddenly have a whole ton of new cards coming into the format. It's just going to be a lot of chaff, I think, mixed in with there with, with the good stuff. Zach, go ahead. Do you want to finish my compliment sandwich? I, I do want to finish Goblin Sandwich by interjecting myself. Please. Uh, Goblin Lore was once chaff that was nothing, right? There's a lot of sleeper, trash, uncommons, and commons that exist and are waiting for a deck to pop up or a new card to exist that can alternate them. So I think you're right in that initially there's going to only be a small impact of things, but this huge injection of cards is going to leave just so many ripples that are going to have all these little decks spread out that didn't have that card before, didn't have an ability before. It's like you read my mind, Zach. That's why we do this podcast together, dude. Um, that, that's really my primary hope, right? It's like I want this injection of excitement and experimentation and a little bit of new life for modern. And I think that early on, some things will be like, quote unquote, solved really quickly with these new sort of tier one staples being identified. But what I'd love is for all these weird new cards that are designed for the modern environment, things are going to be discovered over time. And that's really what I'm hopeful, hopeful for, is that we just get some, you know, amulet bloom stuff that suddenly is discovered after a year or two of existing in the format. Yeah, I love the uh, the reactions here. I uh, I think that my, my main question about this whole thing is just, it's really around the price. I think it turns out is just, I, I was kind of hoping that if they did this modern legal set, that they would print it at kind of normal standard pack prices and just be aware that there are cards that are not, that are not going to make it, but that the mythics maybe would drive price or things like that. But it looks like part of what they're trying to do with the price of the set is enforce like a price floor for decks and modern as well. Cause if it's $8 in paper or $10 in paper, whatever people end up selling it for, now that means that, that the mythics that are good out of this are going to be like 80 or $90 cards. And that yeah. is uh, kind of unfortunate in itself in some ways so just something to think about there i think there's also like it's a super cool idea i I think that there's just like a really high potential for there to to be a lot of turbulence for a while after this set comes out because some stuff will be way like overpowered because that's one thing i feel like wizards always does is the first time they try something they always mess up whatever the new mechanic is or the new thing that they're doing is and overshoot a little bit and then have to dial it back uh take a look at something like smuggler's copter for example when it comes to original um, mirror yeah or the entire set yeah lots of things and those are you know that happens but i do think we're we're probably going to be in for a little bit of a wild ride and maybe that's uh maybe that's awesome but I, I was heartened by the fact that the Watsi team said it's not a set about changing or blowing up modern. We just want to enhance it and increase the card pool. And I think some people hate that about modern. And I think the four of us love that. There's a lot of viable decks. And if this makes more viable decks, more tier two decks, tier two plus decks, kind of, I'm, I'm all for that. They directly reference this concept of safe places to push. Like that's an exact quote. You know, what they could bring up a level, what they could bring into the conversation of modern. 
where they could drop cards and feel confident they were the appropriate shots to take. Of course, it sounds like they're shooting for the right things, and I think it remains to be seen what they missed or what wasn't pushed far enough. Yeah, in general, I think it's too soon to really speculate on how it's going to impact the format. It'll probably have some impact. Who knows what it'll be? Maybe it'll make everything way better somehow. So I, I will say one thing that was really interesting to me is that, not to step on you for a second here, Stan, but the note that Matt Nass said where he said, well, most sets maybe have five cards that make it into modern in it. I think sometimes it's less, of course. Sometimes it's one or two cards mm-hmm. makes it into modern playability. Yeah. I would not be surprised if there were like 10 or 15 cards from this set that ultimately made it into modern playability, even though they intended to have these cards really add to the card pool a lot. That's a cold shot for sure. Wow. I was guessing 20%. My guess was like somewhere around 40 to 50. That's a lot of cards. Yeah. Hearing myself say it, it sounds like a ton. I think if they're designing cards with modern in mind, we're, we're speculating right now, which maybe we said we don't do, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, in general, I want to hold my judgment until we get a sense of the cards that are being added to Modern from older formats, because I think that could really be indicative of the power level of this set and the future power level of the format that the designers see for it. Conceptually, I love the idea of adding powerful old cards that weren't in Modern that are too strong for Standard now making it into the format. We've got into a lot of fights among the four of us about whether or not Counterspell or Baleful Strix should be in Modern. Those are cards I would love to see. I don't know about you guys. And if that was a possibility or, you know, other cards that people love that haven't found a home yet in the format since there's no way to get them in otherwise, this could be a good thing and could open up some people's collections even. Who knows? Yeah. Here, here's my take on that. As much as I would love to play with Counterspell again in a format that I actually like, I think that they will be making a big mistake if they take the all-stars from Legacy and port some of them down into Modern. So yeah, I, agree. I, I would much more expect them to pick things that are powerful cards, maybe from sort of like standard sets gone by, pre-8th edition standard sets that don't have homes in Legacy and seeing if they can have a home in modern. That would be the way that I would think they might approach what cards to to bring forward from the older sets. So you'd rather see a card like Days and Counterspell? I don't even want to see Days. I mean Days used to, well, used Force to Spike? play. Man, I mean, yeah. I've heard Force Spike already be bounced around. Force Spike, I think, is kind of like the level I might be okay with. I think they'll look for cards that were popular from like invasion block that never turned into anything else and be like, here it is. Like, uh, I'm not going to speculate too much about cards, but a card that comes to mind from like when I used to play during invasion block was Urza's Rage, which is a card that would never <laughs> see play in modern either, even if it was printed today. But it's stuff like that that was like, oh, this was a sweet card and splashy. And now maybe we can give it a try because it's never going to be powerful enough for legacy. A concern of mine that I want to bounce off you guys is. I have a worry that many of our listeners probably identify as more casual players, and they might have a modern deck, maybe two modern decks, maybe 1.5. And I'm worried that a format shakeup like this could outmode a number of decks, and you know maybe they get pushed out of the format, or maybe they get pushed to be not even fun to play anymore, because they're just not as competitively viable, right? And so then those players would have to say, well, what can I move into? And maybe they're lacking all these fetch lands that they just haven't ever picked up. So they want to take a deck that's powerful enough to win at their FNM. They want to have some fun with it. They don't want to feel like they're getting stomped on. But 
they're missing all these cards that they didn't know they needed to have in the first place. Yeah, that was a concern that ran through my mind as well because of the deck that we mentioned quite a bit of Scred. And my first thought was, if Scred doesn't get a new card here, I don't know if I can keep playing Scred anymore. With this huge injection of really powerful cards, I feel like if you have a, a tier two deck or a fringe deck that is really a big pet deck of yours, that you, if you're not getting a tool here, you might have to pivot because of all this injection of power. I mean, that's speculation, but it's a worry that came to mind right away. Here's what I would say about, about what you guys are talking about. And that is, that I wouldn't be that concerned about it if it wasn't for the price of the packs. Yeah, right? Okay. If the packs were going to be standard standard level prices, I would be like, okay, you know, you're going to have to buy some $40 Mythics maybe to move into a new deck or $30 Mythics or once there's enough supply, whatever. You know, I know there's no MSRP anymore, but stuff that's sold for $7 on Moto has generally sold for $10 in paper. Yeah. And that is super annoying to me. The other thing is, so we've talked about how to pick cards out of spoilers for modern before. And one of the first things that you have to look at is one mana spells, right? How many spells, one mana spells could they put in this set? You know what I mean? We don't know, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just going to like make it really easy, I think, to go through quickly and, and kind of go, eh, I don't think that's good enough. Uh, I think this could be good enough. Like, there's, there's still a gate there of a lot of the commons and uncommons won't be able to make it through. I don't know what I can say that I haven't already said. I'm reserving judgment. I'm kind of annoyed that they built this up for a month and then they gave us two cards and said we have to wait another two months to hear more cards. Not more than that. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's sort of the Watsy mode of building hype and doing it over the course of you know, half a year, it seems like. Maybe yeah. it'll be cool. Maybe the limited format will be super cool and people will be motivated to play that and pick up some cards for modern that way too. Yeah. Are you excited about this concept? They said that it was going to be something that everybody was going to be excited about. Are you excited about this concept? I'm cautiously optimistic about this. I'm 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 tailing my excitement until I see more. This has the potential to be one of the like there's never been a shakeup like this in modern ever, ever, ever since its inception. There's never been this many cards introduced or anything like that. I think this is a ton of potential to be very cool, but I don't want to get hyped until I know more than two cards in this two hundred and fifty five card set. So two things. A hundreds of cards are added into modern every year. They just go through standard first. But not cards designed specifically for modern. That's true. It's different. That's true. But and and not reprints that are specifically for the format. I think you're right that 100 cards are added, but not with this intention or this d deliberate attitude. That's totally fair. I share your cautious optimism in general. And I also say I was pretty shocked that they made it clear that this wasn't going to be on Arena because it makes it seem like it's going to take even longer, if ever, for Modern to reach Arena. So for MTGO players, that could even be another big sigh of relief. On the vein of what you were saying, Zach, is these cards were designed to skip the standard power level, right? Right. So I know this is something Dave's mentioned earlier, too, where he has a concern that if we do something like this, how many things did they miss in testing? Sure. Right? Like, how many things are going to come into the into the format and just be overtly overpowered? Something they missed, something that makes a whole new deck, a deck that they didn't see coming, and that's concerning. And so it's, I mean, I, like to answer your question, Dave, I'm really excited. I think it's great. I think it's a cool idea. And I hope the execution is successful, but that remains to be seen. Yeah. It, my, my thought here is six months ago, <clears throat> when I first saw somebody mention this as an idea, seriously, I think it might have been Seth from Goldfish who said in a tweet, something about printing cards directly in modern. I was like, oh my God, no way. I don't think they should ever do that. Blah, 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 blah. 
over the last couple of months, the more I've thought about how they could innovate in this space or other ways that they can open up, honestly, streams to keep players like us engaged, players who don't really play in standard, it just made more and more sense where I kind of felt like there was no way that the product that they were going to announce today was not this. And in that sense, because I think it's a logical thing to do, I, I'm cautiously optimistic and excited about it as well. I think that personally, you know, I haven't bought any boxes of cards. I bought a box of um, Ultimate Masters. I haven't bought anything other than that for years. And I think this will probably be the first time that I buy sealed products in a long time. So in some ways, they've accomplished their goal right there. If the buy a box promo is red, I will buy the box. <laughs> it's red. It's going to be force of will. Yeah, it's got to be force of will. I mean, we just, it's got to be force of will, right? Like that's what the buy a box promos has to be. Oh, man. There's so many blue cards that people are like, I can't wait to see Brainstorm. No. Gush. Force of will. No. Gush. <laughs> no. Gush right into modern. Like, I, Gush me, baby. All those cards seem way too powerful. Do you guys feel that you're being taken advantage of? Immediately after the end of the Masters sets where they're, you know, going through the reprint equity and then they come back and say, Hey, you modern addicts, here's a bunch of new stuff that we're going to make you pay $10 a pack for too. And if you don't, you simply can't keep up with the format. I don't like that very much. That's MTG. That's been the nature of magic since the beginning. Even modern as an eternal format is constantly adapting. Yeah. But this is force adaptation. But I, I just question how you feel about like $35 Arclight Phoenixes too, which, you know, is a similar zone that I imagine some of the cards from this set would will end up in price-wise. And it's just kind of like, <clears throat> if you want to do it, then you do it. If you don't want to do it, you can play a deck that is easier to update. I mean, I don't think that there's going to be like cards from this set that go into Tron, for example. There could be, but I kind of think there won't be. So I, I imagine that there'll be a number of decks that after this that'll be untouched, and maybe there'll just be another tier or another group of decks that are just new. It's just the more I think about it, the more negative I'm getting. It's just so hard to say without any more information. And I, I think we've kind of talked as much as we can about what may or may not happen without getting deep into speculation territory. Yeah, agreed. But I, like I said, I, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm going to stand by that. I don't want to be proven wrong. I don't want to have to spend more than like a hundred or two hundred bucks in order to change one of my decks around, but we'll see. Hopefully there's a cool dragon. Hopefully there's a cool dragon. All right, so now we're going to take a quick second to look at the two cars that they spoiled in today's announcement, starting off with probably one of the flagship singles. It's a new planeswalker called Sarah the Benevolent. Yeah, so Sarah the Benevolent is a two white white. She comes down with four loyalty. Her plus two gives creatures you control with flying get plus one, plus one until end of turn. Minus three creates a four, four angel with flying and vigilance. So she makes a Sarah angel. And then minus six, which she can get to on her second turn down if she doesn't get attacked, is an emblem that casts the enchantment worship. But it's, it's a, you know, the emblem. So it's impossible to remove. Yeah. So if you control a creature, you uh any damage that takes your life below one leaves you at one my first 
instinct or my first whiff of this is this is for EDH people. This isn't for modern. This doesn't really pass any of the tests that we had set forth in our episode about Planeswalkers. It doesn't protect itself. It ults quickly, but it's an ult that requires other cards to work. It does protect itself. Yeah, it makes I Sarah mean... Angel. Oh, no, no, it's minus. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, What I'm trying to say is it doesn't protect itself on its way to ulting. Yeah. The way we would want a card like Nahiri or Koth to do more in a way where it's creating advantage for you. Maybe giving some creatures a bonus for a turn is not the same kind of protection we want in a walker. Creating a Sarah Angel for cheaper than a Sarah Angel cost to cast is good, and sticking around after is good, but I don't know if that's going to cut it in modern. So here's the niche where I think this card might go, or two niches, I guess, is black-white tokens is a deck that could probably use this card. It has to replace either Gideon or Soren. Those are the two format walkers. It has to replace one of those to go in here. Yeah, and I think it maybe doesn't. So you might want to take out one Gideon and replace it with one Sarah just because um, Just because then if you have some spirits or you have something like that, you can bump them or you can also get a big creature. So I think you, I could see that trading out a little bit, but Gideon is very, very powerful. The other thing I thought was that if you're in a deck that wants five, uh, celestial colonnades, like if you're in such a, such a control deck with that's, that's your only finisher, you could maybe run a Sarah as like your fifth celestial colonnade where you maybe get a little bit of bonus afterwards, or you can have some utility where you can have it cast worship or something like that. Although worship's terrible in a blue eye control deck. So yeah, not really know what I'm saying there, but it felt for a minute like maybe, being able to pump out a couple of Sarah Angels if you get lucky might be uh, a win con you could use in a deck like that too. Yeah, I'm I'm fully ready to admit that I'm undervaluing this and Sarah uh-huh. and making tokens is better, but it just it feels iffy to me and it doesn't pass. Maybe we just need to make better rules for Valiant Planeswalkers, but it doesn't pass in the ones we had. I 100% agree that it's iffy. I just I guess I'm looking at the upside for sure. whatever slight side there is. You could see play in spirits potentially. Oh, sure, a lot of flyers. But it seemed like they were giving us examples, I think, of cards they considered modern power level and cards they considered limited, fun, EDH, casual flavor examples, I believe. And so I think that we should talk about uh, Cabal Therapist, which I think was the card they expected to be in competitive modern decks. Right. So that's uh, one mana, one one for a, a a black, and it has Menace. And you can sack a creature in your pre-combat main phase. So note, you can't sacrifice Cabal Therapist on turn one itself to cast Cabal Therapy. So Cabal Therapy reads, name a non-land card. Target player reveals his or her hand and discards all cards with that name. But it has flashback. Well, Cabal Therapy, that's the Cabal thing that's Therapy does have flashback. Yes, yeah, sacrifice a creature. Yeah, that's that's why that card is good, is because you can look once if you miss, and then you can cast it again by sacrificing something. So in the Monastery Mentor decks, what it would do is you would sac- sacrifice a token to it. You know what I mean? And so I think it's part of what those builds are part of what led to Monastery Mentor getting restricted uh, in Legacy. This is another Black White Tokens deck card. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was interesting. Uh, honestly, well, something that reminds me of, and hear me out real quick. It reminds me of Dark Confidant, aka Bob, not because of any similarities in ability, but because it has to stick around to get value. But once you can start producing value, it's going to run away with the game if you can do it right. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I I don't think I have any decks where I would be wanting to play this card right away. Well, I, if, I don't want to play this card at all. No, if, <laughs> it feels like a natural pairing with like Bitter Blossom. 
I guess, and some kind of like blue, uh, black base control deck there. But, um, I'm not sure where that build goes after that, but it feels like that's probably the most obvious token generator that goes with it. I mean, repeated discard is something that we don't really have anywhere in modern. If you really think about it, or at least doesn't, none of it's played. So, right. uh, it's pretty, it could be pretty bad in that sense. But I wasn't, when I saw this card, I wasn't like, yes. I was just kind of like, oh, a fun reference to an old powerful card. I, I like that from a flavor standpoint, but I, I'm not going to rush out to get four of them, I don't think. Yeah, this really struck me as a card that could have been printed in an EDH deck. And I, I don't think that uh, that's necessarily a bad thing. And there's plenty of times back when I was looking at EDH spoilers that I would think, oh, this could be a cool card in modern. And this maybe seems like a card that slipped over or found a way, but it's interesting to see cards like that pop up now. All right, guys, this is fun. Time traveling with you. I'm glad we finally know what this secret product is. And time will tell whether it gets us excited for the format in the months to come. Let's go back in time when things were a little easier before we were scared and uncertain of the future and we felt like we had all the answers. We're going to go straight into the breakdown. So we're going to start with the modern challenge that happened on the 24th. We're going to run through the top eight, give any interesting takes, play interesting card choices. So first and second, where is it Phoenix? Yep, again. Again. Uh, I can't believe it. uh, These decks had main deck Terramanders as well as Surgical Extraction. Main deck Surgical is bananas. They both had main deck Surgical? Yeah. Yeah, one one had two, one had one, but they're both main Uh, deck. Yeah, well, they want to hate that dredge and each other. In fact, a lot of the UR is it Phoenix decks that I'm seeing in last weekend's results were running main deck surgical. So I think it might be either a commentary on where the format is, but maybe that's just good tech for this particular deck since it's an extra free spell. Extra free spell. Yeah, the gut they're shaving the gut shots and hedging against the meta online of probably a lot of Is it Phoenix and Dredge right now, especially. Are they playing surgical over gut shot? Yeah, it's like a two of now in most decks. Gutshot is pretty interesting. And like three surgicals in the 75, it looks like right now. Wow. Yeah, surgical is a card that we keep uh, mentioning on the show. Maybe we'll take some time to talk about it in a future episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I never thought I would see the day where there was enough utility in the format to have it main. Oh, yeah, it was bulk at one point. Yeah, absolutely. Now it's 50 bucks. <laughs> there we go. The circle of life. So moving down this list, and third, we got a Counters Company, which is a deck that we've really talked about a lot in passing on this show. And I think that. It's going to merit its own dive down one day. And in fact, a listener had asked us about this and this list in particular and our thoughts on it, whether we would believe this or sleeve it. So shout out to Mark, who was one of our earliest Twitter followers who asked us a question on Twitter about this. Now, the main thing I would ask here is Shane. Yeah. You actually have played Counters Company before. Oh, yeah. How do you feel about it in the meta right now? Man, I really wish I knew what to say about this deck exactly because it's a pile of creatures that gets there very often and also has a pretty decent backup strategy of just with the beats. But by and large, the counter pieces fold to all sorts of removal. So this deck is not running the infinite life combo for one. So it's more of the value generation deck. It has the Knight of the Reliquary. It has some tireless trackers, but it does have the infinite mana combo built into it. So when you don't think you're going to win through your combo, you typically sideboard that out and then side into your disruptive creatures. You can kind of surprise people game one. If you're going up against a deck where you don't think you're going to win with your combo, you can go into more of a value strategy. 
with not a lot of removal heavy decks out there right now, in my opinion, I think that you could probably just win with a pile of creatures sometimes often and win with your combo sometimes often as well. So I don't know. I think it depends on your matchups a lot too. So I personally am a pretty big fan of this deck. It feels like a deck that is very hard to master and takes a lot of time to learn all the lines and the plays. So in regards to our listener's question, if I would believe this or sleeve it, I would not sleeve it personally, as it is a deck that I think takes a lot of tender love and care to get good and consistent with. But I do believe it, and I do think that it is a real deck that I you will see at any tournament you go to. Yeah, a lot of toolbox decks, like you said, Zach, do require some level of mastery, or at least understanding your list and when to use the tools you have available to you. So yeah, I'm a believer, I'm an, and I'm, I'm a sleever. I own all these cards. I've played this deck more than once. It's, it's definitely something I take to the LGS now and then, and I'll probably run it through a league again pretty soon. In fourth place is another Hardened Scales, or also known as Affinity deck. Uh, this one pretty stock aside from a Spellskite main deck, which is neat. Maybe that's just some spicy tech. Fifth is a very interesting Grixis Kiki deck. Uh? That it's yeah. Can we do a <laughs> record scratch? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sound it's here. A, Just drop it in. It looks like a Grixis control deck that wins via the Kiki combo. It has three Cryptic Command main, three Kiki main, so the mana is just all over the place. Dave, have you had a chance to look at this? This seems kind of up your alley. Uh, it's up my alley, but it's kind of up my alley f- in 2016. Yeah. I feel like I think this deck is sweet. I would definitely give it a try, but uh, I'm not going to have a lot of uh, ho- high hopes for it. I just think Kiki on his own, its own, I guess, is kind of is pretty hard to rely on without some way to consistently cheat it out. And this so this deck tries to get to Kiki by cantripping through it. There's only one Coligan's Command in this deck, which is also surprising to me when usually, you know, you, you want Coligan's Command to return the creature to your hand if you lose one of your pieces. So Dave wants ten Coligan's Commands. <laughs> I do want them all. I want I want all the Coligan's Commands. So there's cards to sort through to get to to your combo pieces, but uh boy, it just looks really fragile in the state that we're in right now. So this looks to me like all the old Kiki Blue Moon decks that were popular a year or two ago before they evolved into the Thing in the Ice Snapcaster Mage package. This still has Snapcaster Mage, but... Did those decks run Cryptic Command? They did, yeah. They just weren't Grixis, and it seems to me that the Grixis splash is just meant to keep the game going a little longer because Blue Red would sometimes struggle with Tarmogoyfs or other big creatures. Yeah, it's just removal. I, I honestly, like, I was never a big fan of those decks either just because i think that kiki jiki there's better win cons for blue moon as it turned out than kiki jiki too and i don't know i feel like this is one where where somebody maybe got a little lucky and just love kind of living in the past a little bit but um this is definitely a deck that sings to me and that i hope does well because i would love to play this again so in six there was a mono red phoenix deck so there are three phoenix decks now in this top eight this one looks very similar to the list i've seen our own stand run Yeah, the only difference with this deck and the one that I have been testing the most with is it's got the four Forked Bolt instead of four Skewer the Critics. And I did do one league online with the Forked Bolt package, and I was underwhelmed after five games. Sample size is low. I'm going to keep testing it, especially ahead of the SCG regionals. But I'm not convinced yet that Forked Bolt is a better alternative to Skewer. And let's talk about the reason. Why, why do you think people are trying out where they play Fork Bolt over Skewer sometimes? I think the idea is to be more all-in on Light Up the Stage as an engine, and also just having a reliable one-mana card as opposed to Skewer, which its fail state is three mana. Yeah, it's a big trade in power, though. 
I don't know. It's interesting to see people try it out. I guess occasionally if people are playing a bunch of X ones, you could also get extra value off of forked bolt. So maybe there's some scenarios where that works too. But um, yeah, it's interesting to see people work that back in a rotation. It's good versus spirits. It kills the mausoleum wanderer. And noble hierarch. Ain't that the truth. Next we have in seventh, a red prison deck. Hey, it's our obligatory seventh place prison deck. <laughs> yeah, Every yeah. event we talk about has a seventh place mono red prison deck. One day that'll be me, Dave. People are sleeping on this. This is probably a better deck than its representation right now. It's got to be. Zach, what do you think? I think I love it. I think I love it. And the more I think about it, the more that a snow covered prison might be in my future. And I'm not talking about severe, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> not again. Zach, are you any closer to picking up those missing gemstone caverns you need? They're on the edge of what I'm interested in right now. I'm not going to go out and buy them, but if some come my way, we'll see. But this deck is pretty interesting. It runs a single P and Kira, Nalar, which is one of my favorite magic cards. Really great you to see that popping You up. love mom and dad. I love mom and dad. Oh, mom and dad, make some thropters, throw some thropters, throw a mindstone, throw a relic. Oh, it's all great fun. I uh, I was on the receiving end of a lot of that the other night. Zach and I were playing some, and uh, boy, that was that was rough. I forgot that they could throw basically any artifacts. It's pretty great. And then coming up in eighth place, we have the topic of today's show: Dredge. Yup, looks like Dredge. Yeah, as we'll come to discuss soon, there's not a lot of variety in a lot of Dredge decks. This has been pretty solid and ironed out. This one runs three Conflagration Main, which is the big spice. Yeah, three conflagrate main uh, instead of two. Yeah, when you're expecting maybe some more smaller creature decks, or you really want to get the conflagrate in your graveyard for the flashback, um, you might run three, and then usually shave a Golgari thug when you do that, which this list does. That wraps it for the modern challenge. The MCQ that happened in Cleveland this weekend. It turned out to be pretty heavily dominated by control. We know that there's two blue white and one Jess guy in the top eight. Unfortunately, there's not any places at us at this current moment, so we can't tell what the actual top eight is. We just know what the actual list were. So we can talk about this super quick, right? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a three control list. There's an Amulet Titan, Dredge, a Grixis Death Shadow, Hardened Scales, and the perennial favorite, Blue Black Fairies. Man, make it an appearance, Blue Black Fairies. Anything weird on any of these guys? I don't think so. The only thing that was interesting was that the Jeskai deck only ran two Wraths and ran four Snapcaster Mage. So it was like a full-on Jeskai control list, old school style. Sure. Where, um, and I, I think that Snapcaster had kind of gotten a little bit lower and lower in, in the deck over the last couple of months. But now we're back. We're back to 20, 2015 with that one. Yeah, I mean, we've mentioned on the show before how Snapcaster Beatdown is sometimes just a legitimate plan and will get you games. I want to talk for a second about this Blue-Black Fairies deck because it's probably the biggest curveball of the list, of this MCQ results list. Is Fairies kind of a misnomer? All it's got are the three Spell Stutter Sprite as well as... That's it. <laughs> bitter Blossom. Oh, yeah. It, it does have the... I, for a second, yeah. I didn't see the Bitter Blossoms, but yeah, they're, they're there. I mean, it is kind of a misnomer. It really just looks like Blue-Black Control in some ways with uh, that kills you with Bitter Blossom. I usually would think if you wanted to call it Fairies, you would have to be running the um, Mistbind Click if you were really going to go for it, like the, the one that champions and taps a bunch of stuff and is a 4-4 flyer to really kind of be all in on Fairies. But the way that this is, it really just kind of looks like a control deck. I gotta ask, blue-black control with a fairy's twist. Sleeve it, believe it, or heave it? I don't cast these cards. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch someone else believe it. I have no interest in this. I I love blue-black control. I don't think this is the right build. That's me. 
And I feel nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Stone Cold Stanislav. Great. So I think that wraps it up for our discussion about that. We're going to move on to a few decks we thought were interesting in the dumps from 219 and 222. And I think I'll start off with a deck that I think I would almost call Mono White Scred. It's four Chalice Main, four Mindstone, run a bunch of Planeswalker and mid-range threats. This is by Stormcrow with a Q instead of a C, and I'm just loving this deck. What do you guys think? Zach, why are you calling this mid-range? To me, it looks like control, but with a slightly different control package and then a slightly different finisher package. But in so many other ways, with Elspeth, with the Gideons, even with Archangel Avison, it still has control finishers that we've seen in blue-white before. I would say the lack of card advantage is what makes it mid-range to me, is that you're not trying to remove stuff and get ahead, you're removing stuff and playing their own threats to that they have to answer, which is much similar to Scred's plan. And I know that Scred is on the border of what mid-range can be considered, but I still think the lack of a card draw engine is what is keeping this out of the control camp. It does have two Horizon Canopy, but... It also has four Mind Stones, but I'm not going to call those card advantage. Yeah. I also think that this is really just Wrath dot deck. Sure. Yeah. This, this is, is this is this is four Wrath of God, four Settle the Wreckage, three Elspeth Sun's Champion, which I don't know if you guys remember, but her minus ability is to Wrath creatures with power four or above. Mm-hmm. Um and then it has Cast Out, it has Journey to Nowhere. It has another it has four lane line of sanctity in the sideboard. This is like four rest in peace. No yeah, four rest in peace. This is like Wrath dot deck to me. And then I'm just going to kill you with Gideon Jura. It also looks like another deck that has blue-red in its crosshairs. Four Chalice Main. I guess it's blue-red and burn. You know, you're clearly putting it on one since you need to be able to cast Journey into Nowhere. But this is just how do we play Chalice of the Void since it's so good right now and get around the fact that we can't cast Path to Exile. That's a great, great point. Yeah, I did not notice that there's no paths in here for some reason. That's why. We're going to Chalice one and go, go with that. Another thing we thought was interesting was a Vanifier combo deck. This one was a little different in that it didn't run any Chords of Calling for that consistency, but it did have a Goblin Crater Maker and a Village Bell Ringer in addition to the Kiki-Jikis. Yeah, so this deck I thought was really interesting just because I've been playing a little bit of Vanifar lately, but I've been playing Vanifar with all the um, the untappers on 2-3-4. This one goes a little bit more of a uh, value route in some ways and relies on the idea that you can go get Restoration Angel into Village Bell Ringer into Kiki Jiki. So it's a um it's a sort of different chain than the other one, but there's a lot of other cards in here that you can win with, including four Voice of Resurgence in the main in the main deck, and also uh two Knight of the, of the Reliquary that can get really huge and just kind of do some damage. So it's a it's a Vanifar deck that has multiple kind of win cons that don't necessarily involve comboing off. Moving on, we have a mono-red Living End Hollow One deck that looks very interesting. I played against this deck this week. Did you really? It was wild. Yeah, I just played against it in the league I played today. Yeah, Electro Dominance seems to be a very playable modern card. Yeah. Yeah, it's perfectly cromulent. So this is a really cool combination of Living End, Electro Dominance, and Hollow One. And so while you look at first, it might be hard to tell how they work together. But the fact is, Hollow One rewards cycling. You can still play um, Faithless Looting in a deck like this in order to kind of fill up your graveyard. You can put Street Wraith in. All, all of those cards still attack well after you manage to cast a Living End, but it also gives you a chance to do a broken open where you can play a um, 
where you can play a hollow one on turn two and actually put some pressure on early so you have an alternate win con is my guess. Now, Shane, you said you played it. What did you think about playing it? So I played against it and I beat them pretty handily, but only because uh, game one, I had a very good dredge start and the engine just worked. Um, game two, I thought seized their electrodominance out of their hand because I figured as a as a deck that's trying to combo, I brought in my two thought seizes from the board. This is all spoilers for later on, by the way. But if you get rid of their action cards, they really can't do much. They did do a turn where they cast three free hollow ones, which is still very good. Nice. Um, I think I actually, I think I actually did win through that game only because they didn't have anything else going on. They were just kind of top decking and I had enough sort of chump blockers. You know, you could hard cast a stinkweed imp and which has death touch essentially. And they just really couldn't get through me, which shows the power of dredge when you just grind with creatures better than other decks do, unless they got to their action cards, which they did not. So I probably didn't see it as at its best, but it was definitely a curiosity to me when I saw it at first, I was like, what the hell am I seeing? This was a, when I saw this deck list, it was a little bit of a light bulb moment for me where I was kind of like, oh, this makes sense as a thing to explore for sure. Not sure if it's going to be good yet, but we'll see. So the other deck I want to point out to you guys is this Streaksit Esper Spirits list that's got the one main deck Curious Obsession and it's splashing black for two Collective Brutality, three Lingering Souls, three Fatal Push, and then some extra sideboard cards including that's not really that's not really a black splash at that point is it stan that's just black i mean when you run a basic swamp that's not a splash that's just esper (laughs) that's a sprinkle (laughs) well i mean this deck is super vulnerable to blood moon like original a spirit three color spirits is so i imagine they have to run a, a basic swamp regardless of if they really want to just to make sure they don't get shut out um I mean, this deck is really cool. I'll, I'll say I've seen Spirits List with Lingering Souls a couple of times here and there. I haven't seen one that went all the way to deciding that they wanted to run Fatal Push as well. Um, it's a little hard to tell what they're trying to kill with Fatal Push that they can't just kill with Path to Exile. And in fact, I think that's been one of the tensions in playing black-white decks for the last couple of years since Fatal Push came out, which is basically like, you're either a Path to Exile deck or you're a Fatal Push deck. You're not often both. Um, unfortunately, but anyway, that's maybe a different story for a different day. I think the one thing that's really interesting here too, is the, um, one thing that I've noticed with spirits lately is blue white decks in spirits are starting to show up again. And I think part of that is because of the, um, deputy of detentions as, as a yeah. main deck card. Now this deck is not running that, but some of the blue white lists I've seen have been running it in two or three or things like that. And they've yeah, also been replacing reflector mage. Exactly. It's replacing reflector mage. And for some reason it's enough to pull away from the green because what they're doing in the list that I've seen is running two or three curious obsessions as, as a card in their deck, which seems awesome and interesting, but I'm not sure if it's really enough to make up for not be having uh Coco anymore. I don't know. What do you guys think? This Dreegza deck does have Deputy of Detention, but it's in the sideboard. Ah, okay. Yeah, sorry. I missed that. No, I think this is rad. I mean, I think it's... If you're like, if you a Spirits player and you have some free time or some Mana Trader hours or something like that, then give it a, give it a whirl. It doesn't look... It does not look unfun. I'll tell you what. It looks rad. Lingering Souls is... It continues to be a very playable card in Modern. Just so slow. It's just so slow right now. Yeah, but it's pretty good in a deck with eight Lords. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah three yeah, mana yeah. make two, three, three seems good. Yeah. So that wraps up the breakdown. 
We're going to take a very quick break, and when we return, we're going to do a dive down on Dredge, one of the spookiest decks in modern. (laughs) Stay with us. What is Dredge? Is it a person? A place? A feeling? A moment in time? I think it's basically a feeling of total helplessness. For for you or the dredge player? For for me. <laughs> Not as I mean sometimes for the dredge player. This deck, man, it's I've I thought that we talked about the deck with all the triggers last week with Amulet Titan, but now we're going to talk about Dredge, which is like 20 times as many triggers to manage as Amulet Titan is. Yeah, I really like playing this online instead of in real life. I, when I play this in real life, I'm going to forget so many things. It's mm. so much easier than Amulet, though, because in Amulet, you have to make these weird little micro decisions, whereas in Dredge, oh, half the decisions are made for you. Only brain-dead idiots play Dredge. Zombies. Galaxy brain stand here, you guys. Yeah. So in this dive down, we're going to look at format staple dredge. We'll go over a bit about its history and the mechanic itself. Why? Why? Because <laughs> because we gotta. It's it's like the most represented deck on the in online right now. I know. We'll also look at some of the current lists popping up. Ask what the deck's goal is and outline how the deck is trying to accomplish that goal. Then we'll take a look at the dredge sideboard strategy before finally talking about how to play against and hopefully beat it. Unless I'm playing, then don't beat me. Zach, can you tell me a little bit about the history of dredge? Yeah, so dredge is a mechanic that came from the original Ravnica set, which is from 2005. And I played around then, and dredge was not a mechanic I understood very well. Well, it's super complicated, right? When you read the actual text on the card, you're like, what is this trying to tell me to do? I honestly did not understand what dredge was doing even as a modern player until i played it myself so the dredge mechanic is a card will have dredge x printed on it and x will be a number ranging from i believe one to six are the current options if you have a card with say dredge five a stinkweed imp is an example of that a card will go into later so instead of a draw you can take that dredge card from your graveyard and then mill a number of cards equal to the number of next to dredge so for dredge three you would take that card to your graveyard then put the top three cards of your library into your graveyard so it replaces your draw for the turn yeah and that's any draw so it could be your draw step a draw off faithless looting whatever if a card that you cast says draw two cards and you have two dredge cards in your graveyard you can dredge You can choose to take a natural draw. You can dredge one of the cards out of your graveyard. And then if you get another dredger off that, draw the second, dredge the second card there. So anytime you can draw, you can dredge if it's in your graveyard. So like many truly broken mechanics in magic, it makes no sense the first time you read it. Yeah, absolutely. And then it takes like five times to realize how powerful and and wild the ability to replace a card from your graveyard and also put cards into your graveyard is in an eternal format. Yeah, and we'll talk about why that is. So where where is Dredge on the Storm scale, by the way? Isn't it like a 10? I think it's 10? pretty high up there. It's a 10. Yeah, it's not coming yeah. back. <laughs> yeah. But they, they they have printed cards that, has made, have, that have made Dredge better, which we'll talk about soon. Sure, yeah. just not cards with the actual text Dredge on them. Yeah, the the other thing I was going to say really quickly as we as we pop into this is just there really aren't that that many cards with the actual word dredge on them in the deck. It's mostly all about what enabling dredge. 
using Dredge as an enabler to bring creatures back from your graveyard cheaply, right? Or free. So that's really the goal of the deck, right? It's to mill those cards with the dredge mechanic that are advantageous to mill. And so that can be things like more dredge cards that keep your engine going, or creatures that are recurred easily, or cards that can be flashbacked for you know good or cheaper costs, or they do something cool when they're milled into the graveyard. So when Dredge uh, first popped onto the scene, it wasn't too powerful in standard, but it did quickly enable some powerful extended decks, a format that predated modern. So Dredge was so powerful in this format that when they eventually decided to create modern and implement the format, they preemptively banned both Golgari Grave Troll and Dread Return, which are two of the big cards that made that deck work. So yeah, when you read the text on Dread Return, you see why it's still banned in modern. Because it has a flashback cost of sacrificing three creatures to then re, uh, reanimate something in your graveyard. So that's something you want to be doing in a dredge deck is getting creatures into your graveyard. Yeah, absolutely. So when Modern did become a thing, there were attempts to make dredge a deck, just not including these two cards. And they were pretty all over the place. Four-color decks trying to either dump big creatures into the graveyard and reanimate them or using things like Bridge from Below to make a bunch of zombies. Other fringe strategies like that. And that all changed with Golgari Grave Troll, right? Yeah, exactly. The, the deck really coalesced around a, a more uniform list when Golgari Grave Troll was unbanned in 2015. So this is when cards like Conflagrate and Zombie Infestation began to become more stock. And the deck still was on the lower t- side of the tier, not as powerful now as we'll see. But the really big upgrade came in May 2016 with Shadows Over Innistrad, where you get two huge cards, an Insulate Neonate and Prize Amalgam. Yeah, and Insulate Neonate allowed you to, like, turn one pitch a Golgari Grave Troll into your graveyard, which has Dredge 6 printed on it, which is the which is the largest dredge number. So if you can turn one, get your engine running that smoothly off of Insulate Neonate, Neonate and then Prized Amalgam, which is a, a 3-3, that when another creature enters the battlefield from your graveyard, like a Narcomeva or a Bloodgast when you hit the landfall trigger, then it just comes back at that end step. So if you're milling over Prized Amalgams and then getting a Narcomeva trigger or a Bloodgast trigger, then you immediately have some 3-3 beaters on to the battlefield. So you see why both of those were pretty powerful upgrades. Yeah, absolutely. So the deck began picking up steam at this point, but it was with the printing of the card Cathartic Reunion in Kaladesh that the deck really began to become the monster we all know and love today. So Cathartic Reunion is a card that provided both discard and draw, which is very powerful in this deck. But unlike Faithless Looting, the draw happens after the discard. Yeah, so that let you do these crazy plays like you cast a Cathartic Reunion and you discard two Stinkweed Imps along with the casting cost of Cathartic Reunion, and then you can dredge five off of the first draw. You can dredge another five off of your second draw, and then whatever you have milled into your graveyard from the dredges, then you maybe get another dredge five, you you get a dredge three off of your Life from the Loam, then you have the ability to cast a Life from the Loam on your next turn. So that card is bonkers in dredge. I think it's worth pointing out here that with this deck, dredging five is sometimes better than drawing five actual cards because you're getting the triggers and you're getting cards into play. So with a card that typically you're discarding two, drawing three, you're discarding two, drawing 10, drawing 12, drawing 15. And once again, not drawing, sometimes putting creatures directly into the battlefield. Yeah. So for a while, this was a very powerful, very consistent engine. And then that came tumbling down when Golgari Grave Troll was rebanned in 2017. Yeah, it was deserved. I mean, Dredge was incredibly powerful with Golgari Grave Troll. 
Yes, absolutely. So then Dredge was still a powerful deck, just no longer as consistent as it once was. So it's hanging out in tier two, you know, five oving here and there, do, placing in tournaments. But more recently, another card has popped up that has pushed Dredge back to its former status. And that card is Creeping Chill. Yeah, completely unassuming at first, right? Like, no one talked about this. Is that correct, Dave? Mm, I think people knew that this was going to go into Dredge. I don't. I just don't think they knew how good it was going to be until people showed up to modern events right after guilds came out. Yeah, I do remember seeing online people talking about this in Dredge, but it was more of a, oh, I think I could try this, or this might work, and less of a, oh, I'm, I'm back to tier one now. This is the savior I need. Yeah, immediately running for of. Yeah, exactly. It was, oh, we could test this. We'll see. We have a few slots. Yeah, so what does Creeping Chill do? Well, it's a four converted mana cost sorcery for three colorless and a black that when you cast it, oh, wait, that's not what it's for? No, no. <laughs> that's not what it's for? No. Huh. <laughs> so much like other things in Dredge, you get to cheat it. So when you mill it from your library into your graveyard, you get to cast a free lightning helix. Only on your opponent, but yes. Yeah, it, it, can't, it can't target creatures, but yeah, you get a free, completely free, zero CMC uh, lightning helix to the opponent's dome. Yeah, it's also a very hard to counter lightning helix because traditional counter spells don't work. So you have to exile it from the graveyard in response to the trigger to be able to stop this. Yeah, or like stifle the trigger somehow. Exactly. With- yeah, you you have to work in a weird way. So how many of these cards are all about cheating mana? No, that's what's crazy. I mean, that's what's busted about dredge, Dave. Is like you know when you have your engine enabled and humming, it cheats the rules of magic in like these really powerful and the most busted ways. So, like you get to cheat on mana. So you don't have to play the casting cost of your blood guests of your prized amalgams of your narc amoebas. You don't have to pay the initial upfront cost of your conflict rates. And even conflict rate when you do pay the upfront cost is dirt cheap. So you can just cast it for a single red and the X is zero and then it's in your graveyard. You know, you get your zero mana lightning helix and the creeping chill, but also, really importantly, not does it just cheat on mana, which we know is always busted. It cheats on card advantage because, like Zach was saying earlier, is your Stinkweed Imp dredging five cards into the graveyard can more or less be read as draw five to a dredge player because the graveyard is essentially this huge extension of the dredge player's hands. So when you see a dredge player playing, they have the cards spread out all in front of them yeah. because it's just it's just a big old giant hand to them. Oh, and yeah, they need absolutely. to see everything that's in there. Or it's, I'm going to put my cards that matter in this pile and my cards that don't in this pile, but this That's is what all I my do. graveyard. Yeah. Because and- I'm a noob, so I'm always like resorting like my, you know, my flashbackable cards or my, like, my, my creatures around because I'm going to lose track of it. I saw a dude on camera who was clearly expert level and he just played with his graveyard in a big stack. He was like, <laughs> I know what's in here. I don't need to have this fanned out. Really? That's amazing. <laughs> it was pretty wild. He was fully really logged good. in. That's funny. Yeah. But yeah, like so, you know, it gets around two of the baseline rules of magic. So you you know, one paying for your spells, and two drawing one card a turn, and that's a big deal. How high up on the cheating level do you think that a deck like Dredge is? So if you got your Mox Opal decks, you got your Urza's decks that also kind of cheat on mana. You got your, you know, your is it Phoenix decks that are trying to cheat creatures into play. Dredge is like the king of both of those things, or what? I personally think Dredge is probably the best game one deck in the format. That could that's arguable, but I think that it's close to, if not the best game one deck in the format. So I think this deck is among the cheatiest of them all. That like we mentioned, Dredge five can often read draw five, but maybe better. And there are just other a lot of small synergies in this deck that 
are just disgusting to watch happen in front of you. But I will say, and we'll touch on this later, the deck isn't quote-unquote easy to hate out, but there are a lot of very powerful hate cards that can shut it down in ways that less broken or cheaty decks aren't shut down. So it's very powerful, but there are a lot of safety valves to keep it in check. Yeah. I can understand the fear, though, because when the deck is going off, it seems like nothing that you can do, unless you're running Wrath or have excellent graveyard hate, there's nothing you can do to really stop them from doing their thing. Counterspells seem pretty bad because you don't ever think to counter a Faithless looting, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's something we'll get to later for sure, Stan. But I think to summarize our thoughts, Dave, it's that Dredge is definitely up there in terms of one of the more uh, broken mechanics, at least before the hate that you'll see in the sideboarded games. I think development has gone on record saying that Dredge was a mistake for what it's worth. So It's weird to me that they keep printing cards that go in this deck, though. I know that they say they don't print, like, playtest modern or whatever, really, that they're mostly focused on standard, but Insolent Neonate and Prized Amalgam came out at the same time, and then Cathartic Reunion came out six months later, and then, yeah. you know, a year after that, or a year and a half after that, I guess it's more like two years after that, is uh, Creeping Chill comes out. And Creeping Chill, the thing that I keep looking at when I see that card, Creeping Chill, it's like, the trigger on this is written so that it works with Dredge. Like, it's, there's yeah. another card in Guilds of Ravnica that only works when it is surveilled from the... Really? From the, yeah, it's called uh, Blood Operative. Yeah, 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 you're and right. And it only returns to the to play or return to the hand when it's something gets surveilled into the graveyard. Uh, don't quote me on that, Twitter. But um, it's written in a way so that the trigger only works with surveil. Creeping Chill is works with surveil, but it also clearly works with Dredge, too. So I 100% yeah. think they knew what they were doing when they made that card. Yeah, I think that they like messing with the balance in modern, and then they'll they'll ban things if things get too out of hand. People wouldn't play modern as much and enjoy it as much if the power levels between the decks didn't fluctuate with new printings. No, they they have to. You're right. So I've been playing a decent amount of Dredge uh, the past two weeks in preparation for this episode, and also just out of general interest. And also just because you bought all the cards, even though you told me not to a year ago. But okay. I mean, it was like it was like a hundred bucks of, of stuff left. I had all these other cards. It's a cheap deck. So Dredge is really like this combo aggro deck, right? And the goal is straightforward. You want to dump cards into your graveyard that are better off there than in your hands. And like we said before, that's really cards with Dredge X printed on them. And so you want to do this early on in the game with cards like Shriekhorn, which is a one mana artifact that has three counters on it. And when you tap it, you remove a counter and mill a target player, which is almost certainly going to be yourself two cards or you have faithless looting or you have your cathartic reunions uh, early on how is how is shriekhorn good enough though shriekhorn's good enough because you uh, mill four before your second turn and once the banning of golgari grave troll happened it's just better in terms of math in terms of cards you see mm -hmm. than uh, something like an insolent neonate and so once your dredge cards are in the graveyard things are really humming because then you start replacing your natural draws your faithless looting draws your cathartic reunion draws with your dredges and so that keeps dredge cards flowing in the into the yard to keep the cycle going and so what are you trying to mill over into the yard you ask and so it's many of the creatures we talked about earlier that have that synergistic way to return to the battlefield. So you have your blood guests that return with a landfall trigger. You have your narcomoeba that returns just for being put into the graveyard uh, you from your library. You have your prized amalgams that return along for the ride with your blood guests and your narcomoebas. How is narcomoeba good enough? 
It's only good enough because it brings Price Amalgam along for the ride. Yeah. It's actually, it's terrible. It's a super bad card, right? Yeah, and most most decks these days don't even have a way to naturally cast it, besides your Rainbow Lands. But yeah, you can't even hard cast an Argamiba unless you have a Rainbow Land out, of which there are two in the deck. So yeah, it's really a prized Amalgam deck in a lot of ways, because that's your beater. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. Do you think that, I mean... Narcomib is in there because it has a unique effect that no other card has, but do you think that it's easily replaceable or that it's could be replaced if something came up, or is it too integral to the deck? I think just the way it works is too integral. Like, the, because when you mill it from your library to your graveyard, then it triggers. Like, unless they print something that has a similar effect like that, it's really the returning from the graveyard to the battlefield for free type thing. So you have this creeping chill, you know, that we talked about earlier factors in here as well, because when you're dumping all your cards into your graveyard, sometimes you get that uncounterable lightning helix. Um, really importantly, too, in terms of the goal of the deck is it has a really powerful finisher in conflict rate, and that fits into the strategy of this deck in this really crazily perfect way. So that the normal casting cost is a little limiting, right? So it's XXR, and that deals X damage to any number of targets. So if you had red and two other lands out there, you could deal a total of one damage to any number of targets. No big deal. Not really cool. So this is dredge low. So obviously conflagrate is better in the graveyard. So it's flashback cost is red, red, discard X cards, which then deals X damage to any number of targets. So this allows you to like clear your opponent's board or do a big dome to the opponent at the end while simultaneously restocking your graveyard with all these dredgers you've been picking up. So like you, you keep dredging, you're, you're dredging like four cards from your graveyard, your hands stocked, you're casting life from the loans, which we'll get into later. And you pick up three lands and then you do like a nine damage conflagrate to just finish them off after they've been just building up a board to try to stop your creatures. It's just such a perfect finishing card in Dredge. I love casting it so much. Yeah, I, I really want to just point out real quick that the it, it's X damage to any number of targets. So you yes. can deal that out as you want. Fireball. Yeah, I've had it played against me before when I had uh, P and Kira and Koth out, and I went, okay, it'll either kill me or kill Koth. Oh, wait, my board's wiped? What? And just from there, it became an unwinnable game, and it's just a very powerful card with some text that is... A little hidden. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where when you start playing the deck, you realize how incredible Conflagrate is, and I can't get over it, how well it fits into the strategy of the deck. And how does that card exist? <sighs> I don't know. Thanks, Time Spiral. Yeah, Time Spiral also gave us a Narc Amoeba, so I, yeah. what are you going to do? Time Spiral is a messed up set. The whole block has so many weird cards. So the deck is pretty well figured out right now. So like Dave asked earlier like how is streakhorn good enough why is it replaced insolent neonate i don't know it just has because i think it's mainly because of golgari grave troll being banned and you can't just pitch a dredge sixer shane yes dave just tell me how to beat it so actually dave we're, we're to the point where we're going to learn how you want to beat it because until you know how the deck actually is trying to play out its plan you're not going to know how to fight it so let's say you're casting a turn one thoughtsies you're going to want to know what to take yeah turn one thoughtsies so how does Dredge try to play out its game plan, right? So like a few other combo-y decks, it wants to see a few particular types of cards in its opener. So you want to have at least one Dredge card, you want to have at least one Enabler, and you want to have probably at least two lands, one of which should produce green. And so with those cards in hand, you get your engine going pretty quickly by getting your Dredger in the yard with your discard outlet, and then you begin your Dredge engine like we talked about before. And so why do you want that green source? 
and that's for casting Life from the Loam, which is one of the few cards you actually want to be casting from your hand. Um, Life from the Loam, weirdly, is an incredible card for Dredge. It's this one green sorcery that reads, return up to three target land cards from your graveyard to your hand, and also has Dredge 3 printed on it. So this allows you to really continually make your land drops and fuel your flashback conflict rates. So after turn two, the dredge player is almost never going to be making a natural draw. They're going to be wanting to take their dredge draws. And so casting a life from the loam from their hand allows the dredge player to always be hitting their land drops, which then allows them to do things like recur their blood ghasts or flashing back their faithless looting or casting multiple life from the loams a turn, which then fuels the late game conflict rates that we talked about earlier. And that also allows you to cast your creatures naturally as blockers. So like we talked about before, Stinkweed Imp uh, is two and a black um, for a pretty cruddy creature, but it has Death Touch. And then when it, if it dies, if it blocks something and dies, it goes into the graveyard to be a dredge five again. Frequently casting life from a loam as often as possible is a great move because you want that big hand size for when you get the conflagrate into your yard. And then it always ensures that you have a dredge card in the yard. So to get back to that earlier point about like, you know, what do you thought seize or what do you inquisition of Kozilek or what do you counter and that you want to stop the enablers. Because if they just have a pile of dredgers in their hand, they're going to have to either hard cast them or get or draw into an enabler. Yeah. So, you know, if you if you if you thought sees them and you see a faithless looting or a cathartic reunion and a pile of, you know, cards with dredge printed on them, just get rid of the enabler and you're going to slow them down quite a bit. Yeah. So that's really what the dredge player is looking for is a way to get their engine online. I will say Stinkweed Imp is surprisingly a pain to play against if you're on certain decks. Like if you happen to be on Grix's Death Shadow, it's kind of like, oh, great. They actually cast Stinkweed Imp and now they have a blocker for my, for my Gurmag Angler. For my turn one Gurmag Angler, they have Stinkweed Imp. And so you kind of f- yeah. can get fooled into thinking that they had a misfire, but they still get value out of the card. Uh, so say you turn one thought sees a dredge player and you see both Faithless Looting and Cathartic Reunion. What is the correct one to take on turn one? I mean, that's a good, that's a good question. I mean, Cathartic Reunion is, I think, more powerful in a vacuum because they're able to pitch their dredgers, um, with the casting, with the casting cost of that card. And whereas with Faithless Looting, they're going to have to wait to the flashback to really get the power off of the draws there. I mean, either one, you're not in a great spot. Right. I would, I think I would probably take the Cathartic Reunion, but I might be wrong there. I think that the Faithless Looting turn is a little bit slower than the Cathartic Reunion turn. Yeah, at that point, you're just damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's my expert advice for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the, here's the real thing, too, Zach, is when they have a, a turn one Faithless Looting and a turn two Cathartic Reunion, that turn two Cathartic Reunion is going to be awesome. Right. We talked about what back-to-back Dredge 5, Dredge 5, getting a bunch of Necromibas, etc. Yeah, so I think that I think that Cathartic Reunion is the more powerful card. Um, I think you just have to hope that maybe they brick off of the Faithless Looting, like the, the second turn uh, dredge, if they, say, loot a dredger into the yard, and then turn two, they dredge off it, and they kind of brick, which happened to me just, the, just today, then, you know, I think that's probably your best bet. So just to clarify, your strategy versus dredge is to hope they brick. Game one, yes. Sure. Definitely. <laughs> So is there ever an instance where you decline a dredge trigger? Um, sometimes you have to. Like if you kept a single land and you're drawing to the second, like let's say you mold to five and you have like a, a single land hand with a looting 
and maybe you don't draw that second land off of the looting, then you need to get to that second land. So you're going to natural draw till you get there. Um, and the math on the mulled hand on the play with a single faithless looting is actually pretty good to hit your second land by turn two. It's like 81% if you incorporate the scry, the two draws off of the looting, and then the turn two natural draw. And then on the draw, it's even better. Oh, sure. That makes sense. So we'll try to run down the sideboard pretty quickly here. And so Dredge has to ensure its Dredge engine can function. So really the most it tries to board is like four to five cards. And so the cards on the board are typically either trying to be flexible, like Abrupt Decay, or like ultra-powerful anti-hate cards, like Nature's Claim. Or they're kind of pseudo-enablers themselves while also doing something else powerful, like a Lightning Axe. And so right now, the common sideboard cards you're going to see Dredge bring in against you are like two to three Ancient Grudge which you know stops artifact graveyard hate, other important artifacts, it kills artifact creatures, and it's still castable if you dredge it. So that's why it's essential. And mostly they would want to use that to get rid of your relics, your yeah. graft digger's cage, that kind yeah. of stuff. Tormond's crypt. Tormond's crypt, which is kind of weird because that just forces you to sacrifice it, but it's still a play, right? Felden's cane. <laughs> it's, it, what's good about it is it, it forces the opponent to like pop the relic right because you know it it's 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 just done at that point so even if you have stuff in your graveyard it at least makes them pop it and you can try to rebuild from there so it's going to have four nature's claim because that is essential it removes the most important hate that uh opponents might bring in on turn one so just for a green gets rid of enchantments or artifacts and what is the most important hate things like leyland of the void leyland the void rest in peace stuff like that exactly it's super important A three lightning axe is a way to get a card in the yard with dredge, um, but also it provides instant speed removal for big beefers. That's a great option uh, in the sideboard because it doesn't kill your engine, but also allows you to remove big creatures that are challenging to fight through. So kind of have like one abrupt decay, maybe an assassin's trophy. So that's more ways to deal with hate or other walkers or creatures or just things that are tough for you to deal with. And it typically has another Dark Blast, which is removal that can be recurred. That's really good against Mana Dork decks without stopping your Dredge engine. So Dark Blast is the most unassuming-looking card. It's black for a uh, for a card that gives a target creature minus one, minus one, and has Dredge three. Yeah. And it turns out that that is totally fine because it says Dredge three on it, and it picks off Mana Dorks. There's a cool play you can do when, in your upkeep... You cast it from your hand for minus one, minus one, and then your dre- your draw, you dredge it back into your hand and then do another minus one, minus one. So you can actually kill a two toughness creature if it's in your hand naturally while getting a dredge. Flexible spots right now are collective brutality, pretty good against burn, but you're already pretty good against burn. It can remo- remove counter spells, surgical extractions, or enable your discard. Uh, Thoughtseize, you can see a couple of. So the matchup being good versus burn is a new thing, correct, with the printing of Creeping Chill? Or was it always a good matchup and Creeping Chill made it better? Yeah, Creeping Chill definitely made this matchup a lot better. So Collective Brutality is seen much less because it's much less necessary against aggressive strategies like burn. You're going to sometimes see Thoughtseize. You know, it's going to try to remove your important combo pieces or your hate cards before you have a chance to cast them. You may see Leyline of the Void. That's usually seen in the sideboard, but dredge players have a discussion whether or not it's going to cause you to overboard. So if you're bringing in, say, four Nature's Claims and four Leyline of the Voids versus the Mirror, like just in case they also brought in four Leylines, you're going to hose your engine and probably play worse than your opponent. 
So some players do zero to one to two of these. So just in case they do happen to draw one there in their opener, it's a real hoser without ruining their engine. And because you're never going to really draw naturally after the first couple of turns, it's not a terrible option to have in your deck because when you get it, it's awesome. And when you don't get it, you're going to probably mill it. You might see some engineered explosives, which is really flexible, can get rid of hate, can get rid of uh, wide border creatures, and can be cast up to X equals three in this deck. Um, sometimes you'll see some Vengeful Pharaoh. Um, it's another card you're never going to naturally cast, or they're never going to naturally cast against you. It's a two BBB casting cost. But when it's in your graveyard, you can choose to destroy a target attacking creature if it does damage to you or a planeswalker you control that turn. And then it goes back on top of your library to then be dredged or milled back into the yard again. So that's going to be good against things like Teamer Battle Rage decks, like Dave mentioned, you know, your Gourmet Angler decks. But honestly, Dredge is pretty incredible against Shadow decks before before boarding anyway, so it's not as frequent an inclusion in the board. So that's what Dredge is going to be doing against you. Okay. Shane? Yeah. It's time to breathe. Yeah. We've gotten through how Dredge works. Yes, thank God. And I have a note here from the doctorate committee of Stan, Zach, and myself And we are ready to approve your thesis and say that you or your dissertation upon Dredge has been accepted and you are now Dr. Dredgeman. Successfully defended. Well done. Well done. Dr. Dredgeman, can you please check out this growth on my back? (laughs) (laughs) You must, you guys must be great on a really easy curve because I'm about 50% with this deck right now. I'll tell you what. In fact, fact, I'm exactly 50% with this deck. Well, you're good at, you're getting at describing it. You were also the only one that applied, so we sort of had to have you go through. All right, so we've talked about how the deck works. People need to know how to beat it, because it sounds like in game one, if the engine is chugging along, then it's going to be very hard. So what are we going to do in games two and three to get over the hump? So it's really hard for Dredge to play offense and defense at the same time. So if you can get like some big creatures on the battlefield that Dredge isn't able to punch through, that can really stymie the Dredge player's plan. So if your humans deck is creating a bunch of counters, making some big humans, that's going to be hard for them to fight through. Spirits is a real pain because with the lords and the natural uh, big large toughness of those of some of those creatures, they're hard to remove. And the evasion. Yeah, and the evasion is a pain. Is it Phoenix with Thing in the Ice can put up a roadblock that's you know kind of impossible for Dredge to punch through. And then in the case of Thing, you know, it flips their board, lets you turn the corner really quickly. Um, humans can also, with meddling mage, name cards like Life from the Loam. That makes the dredge player unable to fill their hand to then get that strong conflagrate flashback. And then Spirits has those hexproof granted creatures that make conflagrate really weak as well. I think it's worth pointing out here that it's important to swarm the board with strong creatures and not just play one or two big creatures. As we pointed out, a thing like Gurmeg Angler is not great because you will just play Sneakweed Imp and have it block it. Yeah, or you just go wide around them with a whole bunch of creatures. If they go wide, you go wider. Is that kind of what it is? <laughs> yes. There are a lot of permanents on the dredge player's side when they get things going on. Yeah, if it's really going, yeah, it's hard. But the sideboard hate against the deck is also quite good. And if you know what your surgical targets are... Way to jump the gun there, Stan. <laughs> it's also really strong to take the dredge player off green mana early. And you can do that with Field of Ruins or Ghost Quarters. It makes them unable to cast Life from the Loam. And so if the Dredge player is able to cast an early Loam, they're going to probably have access to another green source. Um, and also Blood Moon isn't really that bad against Dredge because it can cut them off of green mana. So it's interesting for me to hear you say that because Blood Moon seems very questionable considering that Cathartic Reunion and Faithless Looting are both red and they are among the most important cards to actually cast. 
You are not appreciating the power of Life from the Loam, my friend. Life from the Loam is what makes this deck tick over the mid-game to the end-game. Um, and if you're not casting Life from the Loam, you are frequently in very bad shape. So if you cut the dredge player off from green, you're cutting a huge part of their engine. So they may get some early stuff going, but they're going to pr- likely stumble towards the mid and end game, especially when it comes to casting a big conflagrate to finish you off. Absolutely. As someone who casts Blood Moon, I will sometimes shave one, go down to two, but it is very good. And especially if you are running Artifact Graveyard Hate, you can keep them from ever casting Making Green. So your Relic can just be up and you can pop it when you need to instead of them forcing your hand. Yeah. So in addition to the decks we talked about earlier, another strong deck is Amulet Titan, which we went over in depth last last week. Be sure to listen to that episode. Um, little plug there. It, that can find Bajuka Bog quickly, which when it ETBs, exiles a target player's graveyard. Um, and it also has strong post-sideboard options like Hornet Queen that really stabilize the battlefield against Dredge. I mean, it's not going to win the game by itself, but it's really going to buy you a ton of time, which is what you need with a deck like Amulet Titan. Yeah, but like we said before, Dredge, like say, like Affinity, at least back in the day, is going to win the majority of game ones when the deck and its engine gets going. But post-sideboard is where things get a lot harder for it. So you guys know a lot of these sideboard cards. Let's talk about them together. I've talked so much, so please, you guys talk about your favorite sideboard cards against Dredge. So for my money, one of the best cards that I've played against it is Rest in Peace. Yeah, brutal. I've had a Dredge player scoop online when I played Leyline of the Void off the draw before. <laughs> just as turn zero? They were just, just straight like, up turn, turn zero scoop. They must have not thought you had it in the deck then, so they had no nature's claims. Yeah, it was because I was playing uh, Mono Red Phoenix Ooh, with it brutal. in the sideboard. I myself am particularly a fan of Anger of the Gods, a card that I don't know if we've ever talked about in this show too much, but it hits every single creature that's currently in the main deck, and once they're gone this way, they're gone. So if you're able to hit them after a particularly good order of triggers, they just are out of the game unless they are able to uh, build a big uh, conflagrate. And that's because it exiles, right? Yes. So Stan, earlier what you said about Rest in Peace is great because it's both cheap, just one and a white, and it exiles the graveyard on the ETB. And then the graveyard remains exiled as long as Rest in Peace is around. Yeah, same with, same with Leyline of the Void, which is, like all Leylines, um, it's a 4CMC card, but if it's in your opening hand, you get to play it on turn zero before the game even begins. So that really requires a dredge player to either draw a Nature's Claim or almost certainly lose if you have either a Rest in Peace or a Leyline of the Void uh, on the battlefield. Rest in Peace just exiles the graveyard. It doesn't. If Rest in Peace goes away, they, they don't come back from exile. Grafdigger's Cage is another card that people often like that functions in a similar way to Leyline of the Void or Rest in Peace, but it's it doesn't actually remove the graveyard. It just says that creatures can't come into play from the graveyard. Yeah, and you can't flash back your spells like Faithless Looting or Conflagrate. Right. Or uh, Ancient Grudge, for that matter. So if you dredge yeah, if you dredge your hate card in, then you have a hard time getting rid of Grafdigger's Cage. I mean, Grafdigger's Cage, I think, is a card that's sort of underplayed in, yeah. in general in sideboards, just because it's one one mana. Yeah, we talked about that last week, too. Um, it was seen, we saw it in those rock decks that were winning. Yeah. Um, they had, I think, two of them, I think they had two Grafdigger's Cage in the board, which is a strong idea right now in a dredge a meta. And the last card on the list is Stan's personal favorite card of all cards. It's Surgical Extraction. 
So surgical extraction, people talk about it all the time out of the sideboards. It's crazy. It's used so much right now. Why is surgical extraction good against dredge when it feels like there's so many different cards in the engine that make it go that getting rid of one seems like kind of a uh, a fool's errand? Yeah, this is a quiz for you guys. This is something we've kind of talked about in our chat. When you have a surgical in your hand, what are you looking to target with it? My call is Blood Gas, simply because it can have haste. It can close out games in a quick way that the deck might not be able to without the burn spell. I want to elaborate on that a little bit, because Blood Gas is an excellent surgical target, but I think it ultimately comes down to how many surgicals you have, because the power of surgical against Dredge scales profoundly compared to the power of surgical against other decks. So, for instance, we mentioned that Prized Amalgam is triggered off of either Blood Gas or Narcomoeba, so, for instance, if you have two surgicals, you can hit both of those, and then you've also shot off Prize Amalgam. So you're getting three of their most important creatures with only two spells. Likewise, if you only have the one surgical, I would probably look to get rid of the Prize Amalgam because that's the biggest creature and one of the hardest to deal with. Am I not targeting Life from the Loam? Because you're all about Life from the Loam. Or am I not targeting engine cards? I think that's this gets to an important point. It depends on what you've seen in their graveyard so far and what stage of the game you're in, right? So let's say you have the ability to surgical uh, a dredge card from them. So let's say your opponent casts a turn one Faithless Looting, and they pitched a single dredger into the yard. So that's likely indicating that they do not have another dredger in their hand. They pitch their single only dredger, and they're hoping next turn to then dredge to get their engine going. You could make the argument that surgical extracting their only dredge engine card is going to slow them down so much that if you're able to set up a clock, again, going back to one of our most hit-upon points, if you're hating someone out, you have to set up a clock yourself, or else all you're doing is providing a minute speed bump. So let's say you're a deck that can't set up a clock, or you're a deck that's trying to combo off by turn four, and all you need to do is slow them down a turn or two. Then maybe stopping their engine from going in the first place is super important. But let's say you're deep into the game and they have a lot of their engine going, but you're unable to deal with a 3-3 prize amalgam on turn two very well. And they trigger two, three prize amalgams on turn two, which is very doable. Then like Stan said, you're going to zap that prize amalgam so that they're going to get their much less powerful creatures back like blood gasts and narcomoebas, which hopefully you can just overpower in the mid to end game. I want to mention one other potential surgical target. If I'm the burn player, I would really consider surgicaling a creeping chill because that is one of the hardest cards to beat as a burn player since it's gaining them so much life. Or perhaps a mono red Phoenix player as well. Right. Which in my eyes is kind of a subset of the burn deck, but yeah, it's true. Yeah, I don't, I don't think burn players are playing surgical, but I think, yeah, like the mono red Phoenix maybe. But if you are and you bring it in and you do tag that creeping chill, then yeah, that's probably the best thing to do if you're a burn player. Shane, I've got news for you. Everyone is playing surgical right now. <laughs> uh, you're probably right. It really looks like everyone is. I mean, it's ev- everywhere. One more point that I want to make about creeping chill, which is interesting. If you surgical creeping chill in response to its own trigger, the trigger doesn't go off because the player, the, the owner of creeping chill doesn't have the opportunity to exile it from the yard since you are exiling it before that trigger resolves yeah that happens with with with, with any graveyard removal that happens it's pretty annoying as a dredge player like if you remove their graveyard when the when the creeping chill triggers on the stack they, they get nothing you get nothing nothing so 
Rav Trap, Ravenous Trap, is a really cool uh, trap card. Um, and so trap cards enable you to cast them for free if a condition is hit. So the condition for Ravenous Trap is if they have, what is it? Three cards go into the graveyard from anywhere. Anywhere. So yeah, that lets you then cast it for free. So it can, it's a, it's a black based card, but can be cast for zero. So any colored deck can run it if they so choose. It's an instant. And it's really impossible for the dredger to play around because they're going to be putting easily three just off of a faithless looting um let alone a dredge yeah but when do you when do you do it when do you fire it off that's the problem i've had with these one and done graveyard cards so yeah i mean i think like i said if if it's done early i think it's great to do it early just slow them down and and, and it depends on your plan right so if you're an aggressive deck that has a couple of rav traps on the board and you're able to cast one early, well, then setting yourself up, then that's probably pretty successful. I mean, it also exiles the entire graveyard. So if you draw one late and they're they're like, oh, okay, my graveyard has 20 cards in it. I'm going to dredge five anyway just to get more stuff in there. Then you're like, well, gotcha. Your whole graveyard's gone. Lamb. Yeah, I think the the long and short of it is you play the Rav Trap as soon as they have a trigger that you want to prevent from going off. Because sometimes the dredge opponent is spinning their wheels and they're putting lots of cards in the yard. But if they don't have a means of getting the creature back, you can usually wait since the dredge player is almost always putting three cards in the yard practically every turn. It's That's a really important point, Stan. I think it's easy to be afraid of dredge if you don't really understand what it's doing. And so just because they put a bunch of cards in their graveyard, just look at what's in there. And if nothing is particularly scary right now, then you don't have to pop your Rav Trap. You don't have to surgical anything. You don't have to, you know, do your Tormod's Crypt. You can wait until, like you said, the important triggers are there for you to respond to. Or if you think that you really want to get rid of the Dredge Engine, then you can do it early. But that's definitely more dicey. Probably okay if you got multiple traps in your hand to both have a little early play and some mid-game play, but... Yeah, so these one and done Dave mentioned, um, which ones are those? Tormod's Crypt, Relic of Progenitus, Nihil Spellbomb, Ravenous Trap, and other things like that. Yeah, so like they're like you what typically artifacts that come down for one or zero CMC. Yeah. And then they exile both graveyards, one graveyard, you can tap it to get rid of a card type thing. And like we said earlier, I think those need to be backed up by your own pressure. But honestly, I mean, Relic has done a lot of work against me. It's not as weak as one might think because you can just tap it to exile a card. So if someone's slow to get their engine going, just as a quick example, I had a game where I mulled, I think, to five or four or something like that, right? And my opponent played an early relic. And so I'm, you know, casting a Faithless Looting, desperately hoping to draw into a Dredger. Um, they cast a Relic of Progenitus, make me exile the cards in there. So I'm unable to even really get my engine going. They make me exile my Faithless Looting before I can flash it back. It's just an annoyance. And then even if I got things going, I got things in my yard, they can pop it in any time. And then my whole strategy is pretty much done for. As someone who uses Relic, it's a really interesting thing because they can't really play around it too much. They have to sort of try to go for it and make you pop it. And yeah. there's a time when they can dredge and they just happen to hit, what, three Creeping Chills and yeah. a Price Amalgam, and you pop it then in response to the triggers. So they had to go for it, and you got them before they got any payoff for it. I think dredge players like to make it sound like it's easy to play around, but because you can't really control what's going into your graveyard that well, because you're just, if you're just dredging five, you're like, well, let's see what we get, right? And then you're like, oh, they got two more dredgers and a creeping chill. Kablam. 
unless they have a really sculpted hand early on where they can say sandbag a second cathartic reunion or a second faithless looting to try to get things back online if they're scrambling to get things going and you have a relic or a spell bomb or a tormod's crypt that can be pretty much good game wow <laughs> dave did you learn anything did we did we mill our whole deck into the graveyard here are we are we at the bottom of the pile I did. I did kill myself by milling, uh, oh, did milling you really? myself once. That's yeah, once I did. It, it was bad. All right. So I have a question for you guys. We've talked a lot about how good Dredge is in game one matchups, and I'm curious if there are any really bad matchups for Dredge where the opponent might actually get the edge in game one. I think decks that run Anger the Gods mainboard are a good yeah. place to start. Okay. So there's a couple <laughs> so of scred. ones like that. There's Scred. I mean, doesn't a Titan Shift? Yeah, Titan Shift does, yes. Right. Mono that's, Red Prison, perhaps. That's one thing. Yeah, Mono Red Prison probably has some number Th- they've of They've moved more towards Slag Storm in the main than Anger. Mm, that's a bad idea. <laughs> With the number of things that come from the graveyard, like why why would they run something that just nugs players? Because you do got to get the win it eventually, right? So if you've locked them out with a bridge or chalice, you're not worried about getting hit for stuff. Fair. I think that anything that has Thing in the Ice main deck or has Terminus... Main deck is probably pretty annoying. I mean, I think I think blue white control. I think Jeskai control is much worse than blue white control. Yeah, I agree. But I think I think blue white control probably can have a pretty even game one matchup. I mean, Jeskai doesn't doesn't run terminus. It runs settle the wreckage. Yes. Settle the wreckage yeah. a problem for dredge. I mean, sure it can it, it can be, but they don't run like a playset of them. And so anything with targeted removal sucks against dredge because all your creatures. I mean, many of your creatures recur or they do something when they're killed anyway. Yeah. Unless the targeted removal happens to be Path to Exile. Even that, though, you only get one thing, and Dredge puts, like, eight things in play, right? Yeah, you're one to one in a deck that's drawing five, technically. You know what I mean? It's brutal. Yeah, baby. I love a good old-fashioned one-for-one. One-for-one for five-for-one. It's not even a one-for-one, one because a, a Dredge opponent's getting that land they may need. Yeah. I think decks that have some disruption or bigger creatures, like like we talked about earlier, like I think, you know, meddling mage, humans can be powerful, spirits can be powerful. You know, if a if a deck really knows how to play against Dredge, which hopefully we've helped you learn a little bit about what Dredge is trying to do, you can know what to counterspell, perhaps. So, you know, if they cast that turn two cathartic and you spell snare it, you can feel really good about yourself. You stopped a huge part of their engine. What are you naming with meddling mage? Like we said earlier, I think you're either going to be naming Life from the Loam or Conflagrate, depending on where you are in the game. Life from the Loam is really going to stop a big Conflagrate, so if their hand size is small, they're not going to be able to build it up back up very easily. So one, one thing I was going to throw in here just as a fun little aside with this deck is... I love is, your fun asides, Dave. Shane, can, can you enlighten us a little bit about how you managed to learn so much about Dredge so quickly? Dave, you know me. I read a lot of articles... Right. I digest a lot of stuff. I yes. go in real deep. But honestly, like, but I think this gets to what Stan was saying. Is it's not that complicated. Yeah. Um, once once you really get it, you get what the engine is trying to do, and there's a certain fail rate there, and then you can assist that fail rate by fighting against them with your sideboard hate cards. Yeah. One thing that people should know, or maybe they maybe they do know about, maybe they don't know about, is that most decks, most established archetypes in modern specific in particular, have entire communities built around playing those decks. So if you look at Dredge, there's a there's probably a subreddit for Dredge. Probably a Facebook group. There's probably a Facebook group. 
I think that you said there was a Discord channel. The Discord is actually really good. Like one of the strongest online players, uh, a Polish gentleman who goes by Sodek online, who five O's and, you know, comes to the modern challenges with it. He's there answering people's questions. Um, they're super helpful. It's, it's great to just like, you know, if you have five spare minutes and, and just say, Hey, here's my opener. Yeah. Would you guys keep this? How would you play it? How would you sequence it? And you know, you get a lot out of that. There's tons of articles, of course, for a deck like Dredge. Um, you know, Jim Davis has this amazing guide, uh, the two-part guide um, back in the Golgari Grave Troll days, but still super relevant for how to think about and play Dredge. There's there's so many resources, and I think that's something that we we are content creators now, which is a weird and amazing to say. Yeah, but we're we, like we deputy to, content creators. Yeah. Junior content creators, junior, yeah, associate, associate junior content creators. We're we're assistant to the content creators. <laughs> yes, yeah. There there are so many amazing people out there writing so many helpful things and want to make other players better without doing anything for themselves. Besides, you know, maybe they cut a paycheck on SCG or something like that. Yeah, I mean that's fine. But by and large, people are there to help you. And when you want to learn about something, you can learn a crap ton in a week. Let me tell you what. Especially when it comes to established archetypes, just I just wanted to to throw this into the episode so people could understand that you know you can go out and have discussions with people about the decks that you're interested to. There's whole subreddit communities and stuff out there for blue white control and, and other things like that. I'm sure that these these places all exist. So doing a little research can always help and can be something that's totally worth your time. If you're someone who's super dedicated to a deck, go and try to be a master of it. So Zach, do you and like the other two Scred players, you know, get together, have some meetups, you know, talk about your lines and your strategies? Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, the thing is, the Facebook group isn't even Scred. It's, I believe, Mono Red Control or Prison. There's just so many different builds of Scred that exist in Mono Red Prison decks and Red White Moon, etc. That it's really more of, I like to play Red and have access to these cards, what should I do with it? Or I play Prison or I do this. But even there, I've been able to post lists when I've done well, ask for feedback. There's always people brewing when new cards come out. It's been helpful for me to see the deck in uh, different ways and through different lenses. No, it's awesome. All right, boys, thank you for that. I learned a lot, and hopefully our listeners will be much less afraid of Dredge moving forward if they were scared. And if they're Dredge players themselves, maybe they learned a thing or two from hearing us break it down as well. And they'll be more scared from all the knowledge we've imparted to their opponents. Yeah, maybe they can tweak into a fresh 75. (laughs) (laughs) Never going to drop it. We're going to take a quick break now, and when we return... We will wind down with a conversation about the new proposed mulligan rule being introduced at Mythic Championship London in April. Stay with us. So anyway, you know, you know what I, I think would make Dredge even better than it already is? Please tell me. I want to know. Is if you could... Take seven off the top, mull it away, and look at a fresh seven, and then discard the worst card, put it on the bottom of your deck. Seems like that would be pretty good for Dredge, wouldn't it? Yeah, like if I want if I want to have exactly four cards, but I can draw seven to pick from them, sounds good to me. It does. And so, welcome to what could very soon be the future of magic. Yeah, so what is this new new what is this news that we got about this? You know, is it a proposed mulligan? Is it a real mulligan? Like, I'm looking at this article from a couple of days ago. It seems like it's going to actually be there. 
So it is a proposed mulligan rule uh, change that Wizards is interested in testing at Mythic Championship London in April, which happens to be a modern format Mythic Championship, which would be super interesting to see that aside. But so one thing I would say is that Wizards has done a good job recently of actually trying out these mulligan rules in high level competitive play before telling the player base that we're going to use them. It does make me feel a little bit like uh, they're probably thinking it's likely to be used. But the new rule proposed by them is that every time you mulligan, you still get to draw seven cards. And what you do is you choose a number of cards from your hand to put on the bottom of your graveyard equal to the number of times you've mulliganed. So instead of scrying, instead of doing anything weird like that, instead of just going down a card, what you do is when you mulligan once, you draw seven, you choose one card and put it on the bottom of your deck. If you want to go down to five, you draw seven, you choose two cards from that hand, put them on the bottom of your deck. I can't believe, I just can't believe they're going to run this out for the first time at a Mythic Championship in modern. Yeah. It just seems crazy to me. Not to mention it is currently unclear whether this new rule was tested with modern by the play design or many of the product design teams at Wizards. Yeah, they said on the stream they didn't really test it, huh? Yeah, I got the sense that they primarily tested it for standard and limited, and then they were just going to see what happens with the eternal formats. Yeah. It seems like we might lead to a total dead format mythic championship where people are going to be playing decks that just try to try to use this modern rule. And then we can't use any of the results to help tell us the way the game is actually going to be played for modern. So I've done a little bit of testing with this role playing with friends. And all I can say is that it feels incredibly powerful in modern. I did a, a bunch of hands like this with my burn deck and being able to keep a seven and put back two lands is very powerful as opposed to keeping a risky five. Yeah. So like, yeah, as a Tron player, sometimes all you need is a good four, let right. alone like a good five, right? So if you're able to pick and choose your card to get get your Tron online. So like with Dredge, this makes sense, right? Like, so Dredge is like, okay, I could piece together my four card engine I need to get going with the enablers, but my opponent could also be mulling to a ley line of the void, right? And so they get their ley line of the void in their opening seven, they keep it. And even if they mull to five, they're like, okay, sweet, I got my... I got my really good odds to get my ley line. But with Tron, very very little things like that is a hard stop to Tron, as we talked about many episodes ago. So that I'm totally in fear slash happiness that something's going to make Tron even better when it's already pretty good. I think the part that is important to remember is that Modern is a fast, broken, degenerate format. That it's using keywords and abilities that wizards have said that they're never going to print again so to me while this new mulligan role could change the gameplay the average gameplay of modern matchups it's not going to make any decks more broken it's just going to make decks more consistent i disagree i, disagree. I yeah. fundamentally disagree with what you're saying to me I, I, think a deck, I think that decks that use fast man as a resource via a simian spirit guide via the rituals Mox are Opal. much better Mox Opal, thank you, are much better this way. Gemstone you, Caverns. Uh, Gemstone Caverns, we can keep going. <laughs> well, let's keep interrupting you. Spire Bluff Canal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that one. But decks that are making use of fast mana are able to more consistently see the two fast mana pieces and the payoff they need to do things like turn one bridge or turn one chalice on one and shut off game plans entirely. Nah. Oh, fair enough. Okay. 
I mean, I, I will say, I will say people, when the scry rule came out, when what's known as the Vancouver Mulligan, which everybody probably forgets is called the Vancouver Mulligan now, came out, people were similarly worried about it breaking the format and making things like Kiki-Jiki and pod decks and whatever. Delver. like Yeah, Delver maybe too. Combo decks a lot more powerful. And that did not happen in Modern last time. I'm not going to say that this one doesn't feel like a lot more powerful, but it does seem like it'll hopefully lead to a lot more games of Magic instead of non-games of Magic. But there's a huge asterisk next to that because... Modern is so optimized around making games of magic into not games of magic. That's a very good point, Dave. Yeah, I, I think that there's the saying that, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And that sort of applies here. But in Modern, the boats that get lifted, like the mid-range decks are great. But then there's that a broken deck on the corner that was already high up and now is even higher up. Yeah. Some decks have more buoyancy than others. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to phrase it, yeah. That broken deck down on the corner that was already broken is going to stay broken. That broken <laughs> deck with a heart of gold. Yeah, the rich get richer. Anyway. Yeah. Obviously, time will tell. I'm more optimistic than nervous about this one. Because, like you said, it goes both ways, right? If I know my opponent is going to try to mulligan to four just so they can find a Simonian Spirit Guide... That's going to change my plan as well, because half of Modern is thinking about what your opponent is doing, too. That's kind of also what stinks about Modern, is the fact that many sideboarded games are non-games. So a frequent complaint about Modern is that it's, did you draw your sideboard hate or not, right? And so someone draws their sideboard hate, you don't draw the anti-hate, the game essentially doesn't happen anyway. So that's my concern here, is that the non-games will just happen in a different way and showcase the bustedness and lack of interactivity like stan likes to say is a ship's passing in the night type of thing and i think that will happen more and more players will not even have a chance to execute their strategy at all the only thing i can say about this is that i feel like this rule might be good for magic in general and bad for modern specifically because i think that as a limited player and someone who used to play a ton of limited uh i can't imagine anything better than feeling like i drafted a good deck and then having to mold five and actually having a fighting chance against somebody who kept seven. But in the context of modern, it makes me super nervous. So one of the things that they seem to go on record saying is, if it's too broken for modern, it will not be in any format, right? So perhaps they want to run it out at the modern mythic championship before people get used to it in other environments. So let's say it's a total bust at the Mythic Championship, which seems really dangerous for them, right? To like have their whole Mythic Championship be a story told about the mulligan rule rather yeah. than the gameplay. Dominated the by Eldrazi decks or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So maybe they just want to test it once, and if it stinks, they're done with it. I still think it seems it seems unlikely that they did not test it at all, because that would be a too big a risk. I mean, I, I almost wonder if there's a different side here which is hey come and watch the most broken tournament ever and then we're gonna ban everything after this tournament that turned out to be degenerate based on the new mulligan rule gross or what if they say check out this crazy busted tournament and then immediately after they say we're gonna stop supporting modern and introduce this new non-rotating format that's arena oh, friendly god at least our our uh, podcast name can easily lets us port over to a new format. No problem. Yeah, this, this is getting borderline speculation, which we don't do, guys. But I, w- I would like to say really quick, there's a reason that we don't often talk about topics like this on here. And that's because our core mission to our uh, 
our listeners is to try to help with game improvement, technical play, make you better, make you feel like you can do better winning your at your LGS. So I think we've indulged ourselves a little bit on kind of speculating what could happen from the new mulligan rule because it was such a hot topic this week. But you won't hear us do stuff like this this often because we just think it's better to focus on things that have happened and react to those as opposed to trying to intuit things that will happen. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about the Mythic Championship after it happens. So good point, Dave. Well, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as they come out every Friday. And if you use iTunes, please leave us a review and a rating. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or prick our brain on something in modern, tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. We typically have some conversations on our thread every week. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and break, break the, the mulligan rule. Oh, you fool. why you should never cast Blood Moon in that matchup. That's not true. (laughs) (laughs) Got him! (laughs) Already. (laughs) You Blood Moon, man. (laughs)